Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes, the American founding father Benjamin Franklin said. But these are exceptionally uncertain times. As the new coronavirus pandemic continues to spread around the world, predictions for 2020 are being torn up. The OECD has downgraded its growth predictions for almost all of the big economies. Following President Donald Trump's announcement on Wednesday of the suspension of travel to the US from Europe, stocks plunged again. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down more than 20% from its high last month, ending a bull market that ran for more than a decade. And while governments try to reassure the public, the pandemic is entering a new phase. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, can forecasters keep up with the coronavirus era? My guest today is Lord King, Mervyn King, a man who's no stranger himself to turbulence. As a former governor of the Bank of England, from 2003 to 2013, he led the institution from the height of booming Britain through the global financial crisis and into recovery. Now with the economist John Kay, he's the author of Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making for an Unknowable Future. Mervyn King, welcome to The Economist Asks. And hello, and hello to all the listeners wherever they are. So tell all the listeners, wherever they may be, home or work or hiding away from the virus, what is radical uncertainty and how does it differ from plain old risk that we used to talk about? Well, radical uncertainty is uncertainty that is difficult perhaps impossible to quantify. So we're used to uncertainty in the form of you tossing a coin. Will the coin come down heads or tails? If it's a fair coin, we know it's 50-50. And some uncertainty is of that kind. But actually, most of the important types of uncertainty, we don't know enough about the events to be sure that we can attach probabilities to them. I think a very good example is the problem that President Barack Obama faced when being asked to decide in the Situation Room in the White House whether or not to send the Navy SEALs into the compound in Abbottabad in Pakistan to capture bin Laden. Intelligence people knew there was someone there. The question was, is this bin Laden or not? Now, interestingly, after the Iraq intelligence failures, Congress mandated the CIA when advising the president to express their advice in the form of probabilities. So Barack Obama was sitting in the Situation Room. People from the CIA came in. One of them said, I think it's 90% certain that the man in the compound is bin Laden. Someone else said 60%. Someone else said 40%. That's not very helpful, isn't it? Someone said 75%. And at the end of it, Barack Obama himself in an interview said that these probabilities were confused things. And he had a very difficult decision to take. And the only sensible response to the question, is bin Laden the man in the compound, was we don't know. And then you have to ask yourself, how do you take decisions in a situation when you don't know? Radical uncertainty is of that kind. It's when you can't pretend to tame it by attaching quantitative numerical probabilities to these events. It's not entirely new in economics 
is it. I think that Keynes and also Frank Knight were arguing this sort of a case in the last century. So why is it important to talk about it now? Well, you're right that Frank Knight and John Maynard Keynes, almost 100 years ago in 1921, published books which challenged the idea that you could attach probabilities to all future events. And they wanted to distinguish between risk, which you could quantify, and uncertainty that you couldn't. And after the Second World War, economists argued that you could not make this distinction, that people would attach probabilities to every event. There was always something, you can make them bet on events, and those bets would reveal their probabilities. But most people do not bet on most things, and for very good reason. If someone asks you a question about something you don't really understand, and is prepared to bet you, the chances are they know more about it than you do, and you'd be very unwise to take on that bet. So this distinction between risk and uncertainty has disappeared. And I think one of the key parts of our our book on radical uncertainty is that we've gone back and asked the question, what do we mean by risk in ordinary everyday language? And what's the difference between that and uncertainty? And risk to most people is bad. Risk is something bad happening that derails the path that you thought you were going to follow. So we suggest that people have an idea of how their life is going to pan out. We call it a reference narrative. And risk is bad things that could make that not happen. You plan to go to Italy on holiday and you discover that because of the coronavirus, it doesn't make sense anymore to go. That's risk. And you want to avoid risk if you can. Uncertainty is very different. Some things are good, some are bad. And in fact, many of the best things in life come from genuine uncertainty. You know, 50 years ago, it was impossible to imagine that you could have a pocket phone that not merely had more computing capacity than the whole of Cambridge University computer, but actually would do lots of other things as well. These things are unknown, and you couldn't imagine beforehand that they could be true, but they bring the benefits of a market economy to us. And when we look at something as sudden, extreme and concerning as the coronavirus spread, there does seem to be a kind of fork in the road. I was watching Boris Johnson doing a sort of public information interview just saying, what, what is it? How do I avoid it with a health expert in the UK who seemed very wedded to the idea of models? And we do understand actually quite a lot. We think we've modelled this correctly and we think therefore we can give you the information to make the policy choices you need to make. And I then turned on television later last night and saw another health professional absolutely railing at this and saying, these models are going to be overtaken too fast. You can't rely on them. You should, in a sense, sort of go with your gut feeling and respond to crises or close things if you have even an inkling that that, uh, that you, you think this is, is going to increase very sharply. Which way are you minded? Well, I think the coronavirus is a very good example of radical uncertainty. We knew last December that it was likely that at some point we would experience a virus perhaps coming out of Asia that would cause concern in that it would spread sufficiently quickly with significant fatalities to be called a pandemic. We knew that was possible, but we didn't know when it would happen where it would come from, how serious the virus would be, how quickly it would spread. As time passes, we're learning more about the nature of the virus, but we don't have a vaccine. And the key to dealing with coronavirus is to ask the question, we may experience such a virus at some point. What sort of things do we do to prepare it? But then you'd either have to believe the modeler or you would have to take the more precautionary principle view that send everyone home as far as possible, you isolate ahead of what the model tells you. So I'm not yet sure which side of that divide you would fall on. So models can be very helpful in thinking about the nature of the problem. The, the risk is that when people who use models pretend that they are a precise description of the world, 
So in terms of the coronavirus, I think it would be an overly strong statement to say that we know sufficient about it to be completely confident of the timing and how quickly it will spread. And what the models can be very useful in doing is, as we saw from some very original work in the United Kingdom a few years ago, tell you that if a virus like this spreads, it can often have two waves. It peaks and then it declines, but then it comes back and peaks again later in the year. Whether this will happen depends on the precise numbers about the nature of the virus. And we don't really know that. So I think that the big mistake is to treat models as black boxes in which someone says, I've got a model, and you press a button, and out comes a number, which is the answer. That's a very bad use of models. And if that's what people are doing now, then they should stop doing it. What models can do is to give you a feel for what kind of things can happen and what are the important numbers that we need to focus on. And clearly, in the case of the coronavirus, I think the health authorities around the world have done sensible things in trying to insulate the people who are experiencing the virus and to prevent the spread through quarantine measures. This seems to me something which is a robust response. Let's talk about other human behaviours that kick in in times of uncertainty. We've seen a range of public responses from a keep calm and carry on mentality. I noticed that particularly coming back from America last week where everyone seems to be much more on edge and there's a slightly British phlegmatism that you still notice when you come back to London. At the same time, people are out there panic buying tin tomatoes and toilet roll. Is that a logical reaction in the face of uncertainty? I think the logical reaction is to ask the question, what is going on here? It sounds a trivial question, but it isn't. It's of fundamental importance. And it makes sense to keep calm in Britain at present, given the extent of the virus. It doesn't make sense to carry on, because there are certain things we should stop doing. We don't shake hands anymore. We're very careful. We did an elbow bump when you came in. We did. And we, we wash our hands frequently. We try to avoid going into areas where larger numbers of people are in close proximity. All of these things are sensible. Now, how far you go in banning people from congregating things, whether you decide to cancel football matches, I think is a more difficult question. But the principle is that you should ask the question, what's going on here, and change your behavior. So what about panic buying, which sounds like something with a bit of a bad reputation. If people do it, they do it a little bit guiltily. But isn't that a bit like, I was about to ask you whether this reminded you of anything that you You'd you'd endured when you were at the Bank of England. Isn't it a bit like a run on a bank? It is exactly like a run on a bank in that it is rational for an individual to go to a shop and stock up. But collectively, this can be damaging because we make purchases in total, which may exceed the capacity of the shop to supply in the short run and which then have to be stored. So collectively, it may not be rational. There's no suggestion yet that the supplies of most commodities to shops in Britain are being limited because of the virus. And so, in principle, you should be able to carry on shopping at your normal rate. But the uncertainty around it means there is an incentive for individuals to say, well, we're not sure about this. We can't be certain. Maybe at some point supplies will be limited or won't arrive in the shops. So let's be safe and stock up. And this is something which I think governments do have a role in trying to ask the question, can we encourage people to behave in a way that is responsible collectively? You mean if the government says don't panic, that'll do the job? No, they mustn't say don't panic. They need to explain carefully what is going on here. This is the import of that question, what is going on here. If the government can explain why they suggest don't panic, that may have more effect because what they're asking people to do is to put the collective interest ahead of their own self-interest. And what about the high-level policy response? The Bank of England made an emergency rate cut to help counter the shock of the virus outbreak on the economy in Britain. That follows on from the US Federal Reserve's decision last week. Would you have made the same decision as governor when you were in post? 
I don't know what I would have done, and I don't think it's for me to comment on that. What I would say is... But you're the only person who could comment on that. No, I, people always comment on monetary policy decisions. But what I think we've seen is that the Bank of England and the government here have worked together. The most important measures in the short run are measures to ensure that businesses, self-employed people can keep the cash flow going. And so the Bank of England and the government have done quite a lot, I think, to ensure that banks will keep supplying lending, will not demand repayments from people who temporarily find their cash flow very sharply cut. And people who run restaurants, you know, if you work in a gymnasium and that gets closed, Mm. you know, you you get no money if you're self-employed. Those people need help. And that is a short-run kind of help, which really only the government can provide. The Bank of England has taken a number of measures which will help the banking system respond to this. All this seems to me extremely sensible. But it's slightly contradictory with, I think, another debate that you have been a bit involved in with Mark Carney, the, the present or now outgoing government of the Bank of England, which is on forward guidance along the lines of whether you can predict what what you're going to do in the future. I mean, your general uncertainty well, approach think, would suggest that forward guidance is a bit of an empty promise. I, I'm not a great fan of forward guidance, but the attraction of the measures that the Bank of England announced yesterday is that they can reverse them very quickly when necessary. So a cut in interest rates is not in itself an answer to the question of how do we deal with the disruption from the coronavirus. But it demonstrates two things. One is that the Bank of England is working hard and working with the government to take measures, which is, I think, very important. And secondly, that the bank is on the case. It will help confidence. It's not designed to boost spending. It takes a long time for cuts in interest rates to feed through. And the attraction of the measure is that if the bank feels in three months' time or six months' time or whenever, we have Mm. no idea, that it's no longer necessary, then it can put interest rates back up again. But I think around the world, this coordination, which we saw in Britain yesterday, is what is needed. And I think in the United States, it was unfortunate that all that happened when the Fed made its announcement on interest rates really was a cut in interest rates. So I think the message from the UK was that the coordination between central bank and government is very important and is of the essence. So let's look briefly at the budget in Britain this week. A lot of the old priorities on deficit reduction seem to go out of the window. The overall message is levelling up the economies of the regions, but a lot of big decisions have been postponed. One way or the other, it looks like a radical increase in borrowing, breaking a lot of the rules that were, were set out not so long ago. What do you make of the budget? Well, the budget in the end became a budget to deal with the coronavirus. And unlike normal budgets, we know we'll get another one later this year. So that gives the new chancellor an opportunity to set out what he thinks the fiscal rules should be and to talk in more conventional terms about the path of spending and borrowing over a longer horizon. So you're a kind of wait and see person. I think we have to be. We have a new chancellor in the UK, Rishi Sunak, and you think he may come back with a different budget later in the year? Well, he'll come back with another budget. And I don't think he's going to reverse what he said he would do. But nevertheless, he better put it into the context of a new framework. But I think we shouldn't forget that his ability to increase spending depended critically on the reduction of the deficit that took place earlier in the decade, when back in 2010, Britain's long-term interest rates were just as high as those in Italy, and in which we had the largest budget deficit of any country in the G20 relative to GDP. Something had to be done. There had to be a plan, and there was a plan. And I think the benefits of that are now mean that Rishi Sunak can embark on a different path for spending and investment than he would have been able to do had absolutely nothing been done earlier on. 
Where do you stand these days on the other big picture of, of the year, and that's Brexit and the trade talks, which were scheduled to be starting to happen now, may indeed also be postponed. But by the end of the year, either a deal on trade is in place or it isn't. And that's perhaps another of great uncertainties facing the UK. Do you think that there will be a deal? I don't know whether there'll be a deal or not. I think that will depend on the intentions of the two sides rather than the details of the negotiations. At present, they're clearly a very long way apart. And it would be very odd for the UK to leave the EU and give up the benefits of being in the EU, but not get any of the advantages. And the advantages are not having to have our rules and regulations set in Brussels, where we'll have no input into their design. So I I don't think the idea... That sounds like a polite way of saying, if you're going to leave, you might as well have a hard Brexit. You have to define the words hard Brexit. I knew you were going to say that. Back in 2016, I made it very clear that the choices were between either remaining in the EU or leaving the single market and the customs union, and if necessary, being prepared to trade under WTO rules. Now, I don't think that is a disaster at all. And the idea that we can't trade under WTO rules is somewhat absurd because we trade with the US and China in that way. We could have a free trade agreement as part of the WTO framework with the rest of the EU. I'd like to think that's where we'll end up. It's certainly in the economic interest of the rest of the EU to go there. So I hope that's where we would end up. But if we end up trading under WTO rules without any free trade in goods, then I don't think that's at all the end of the world. And I think just as when we entered the but common If you were market, doing that without a major US trade deal, you would in fact have gone back to a very basic view of Britain's trade relations in the world. But our trade has been under WTO rules with most countries. And our trade with China has grown much faster than it has with the rest of the EU. Germany's trade with China has grown faster than with the rest of the EU. I think that companies and individuals who want to trade with each other will basically go on doing that unless big impediments are put in their way. And I don't think that trading under WTO rules is a big impediment. You're you're a lot less exercised about Brexit than, shall we say, a number of prominent voices in the City of London or indeed your successor. Would that be a fair comment? Well, I've noticed that both my successor and his successor have been quite open in the last couple of months in saying that we shouldn't align ourselves with regulations in the EU. We should create our own regulatory framework. And that, I think, is the essence of the argument. Deep down, my feeling is most people's motivation in voting in the referendum, whether they wanted to remain or leave, was political. But they decided to dress it up in economic terms and to give people a number which was going to fool them into thinking they should vote for them, not for the other side. That was true of both sides in the campaign. And it was a very good example of what we call in our book, bogus quantification. And it's a terrible mistake that people need to be more adult in talking about the nature of the arguments. Andrew Bailey is about to take over from Mark Carney at the Bank of England. I think you gave him his first senior job back in 2003. What sort of governor do you think he's going to be? So some people say, well, he's a safe pair of hands. He is a safe pair of hands, but he's much more than that. Let me just give you one small example. In October 2008, when Royal Bank of Scotland rang me up and said, terribly sorry, we can't get to the end of the day, I asked Andrew Bailey to be the person who would liaise with Royal Bank of Scotland in organising the loan we made to them that day and the collateral that we took against it. From that day onwards, Andrew was effectively the prudential regulator of major banks. And then later on, he became the formal prudential regulator. So, I, In which I, role he also faced some... Criticism. Not in his role as prudential regulator, but in dealing with the Financial Conduct Authority. But frankly, anybody in that job would be criticised. It's a very difficult position. I think he'll be an extremely effective governor. 
and how he fares and other central bankers and indeed all of us in the global economies depends on whether coronavirus tips the world into the next great recession. Does that fall for you into the category of risk or uncertainty at this point? Well, this is clearly a question of radical uncertainty. We know these things are possible, but it makes no sense to pretend that we can put a probability on it. We can't. We haven't experienced exactly this kind of thing. And we certainly haven't experienced, in global terms, a virus which governments right around the world are taking these draconian measures to try to prevent the spread of the virus. We don't really know what the effect will be. What we should do is to say what kind of robust and resilient responses we need to put in place to deal with it? And what can we do to keep our options open to manage things in the future? The role of the super forecaster has been at the, the forefront of some political debate in Britain since Dominic Cummings, the main chief of staff, key advisor really to Boris Johnson, said that we should pay more heed to super forecasters and less to economic experts and journalists. Perish the thought. A super forecaster, people like Philip Tetlock do have that reputation of getting things more right than wrong in the long term. Do you find they fit into your view of how you would address assessment of risk uncertainty? Well, we talk about this at some length in our book, and Philip Tetlock has the Good Judgment project, which he's been pursuing, in which he gets a number of people to make forecasts, answer questions. I'll give you an example. You know, will there be a free trade agreement signed by a certain date? Or will there be a change in the nature of the Ukrainian regime in a very well-defined way? The difficulty with all this is that the questions he asks are not really the ones to which we want to know the answer. They're very specific and very precise. What's the probability that there will be a downturn in one quarter in the US this year? That's actually not the most important question. The really important question is, do we think the US is heading towards a recession and how long might it persist? And that's a broader and less well-defined question. One of the focuses of our book is to say that the questions to which most people want to know the answers are often ambiguous, ill-defined, but they're very important nevertheless. They want to know what's going to happen. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> not because, just in one quarter. And, and exactly. And, and that is not something which Tetlock's project provides an answer to, and nor can these super forecasters do it. You don't want people who can pretend to be able to know the future precisely and exactly, because no economic model can do it. What economics is incredibly good at doing is framing questions and helping you to think about what is going on here. So if the models are so suspect or partial that they need throwing out or at least treating with more scepticism, what's the point of economics at all? Oh, economics has a very important role. And we're not against models as such. But what models are is a way of helping you organize your thoughts about a problem and getting a feel for what are going to be the important issues. What they are not is a precise description of the world. And that's the difference between economics and, say, a natural science. Provided people understand the real use of models, they can be very helpful in thinking through problems. But what they shouldn't be used for, you know, not to pretend that it's a precise description of exactly how the world works. Now, I think I know something about you that a lot of other interviewers don't. Can you guess what it is? No. <laughs> See, you're avoiding radical risk and uncertainty. I think you're accredited to legally marry people in the US. Ah, that is true. I wanted to ask you, one, how that came about, because it does seem an interesting sideline for a, a former governor of the Bank of England. But how do you rate marriage, risk or radical uncertainty? It's radical uncertainty, which is precisely why it is so valuable. So one thing I often say to students who are graduating is, you all tell me you're worried about the fact that the future is uncertain. And I say to them, 
you ought to be very glad that it is because you don't know who your life partner will be. You don't know what job you'll be doing 10, 15 years from now. You don't know perhaps even in which country you'll be living. But just imagine if I could tell you these are the people you could be married to and this is the probability of each one of them being your partner and these are the countries you could be living in and these are the probabilities. You would go home thinking life is a very grey and drab thing. If it's a bit like Bill Murray in the film Groundhog Day, the great things about life that we enjoy is discovering things that we didn't imagine could be true or people we meet that we never thought of meeting or didn't know about, places we go, music we listen to, books we read. All of these things are the reasons why radical uncertainty makes life worth living. You haven't told us why someone who had, uh, by all accounts, an extremely busy day job ended up being able to legally marry people and what use Ah. you put it to. So I've been spending the last five to six years teaching in New York each autumn, each fall. About a year ago, two of my former students came to me and said, would I marry them? They'd become friends anyway. And I said, I'd be delighted to, but I don't, you know, I I can't marry people. I'm not a clergy. I don't, don't work for the town hall. And they said, oh, no problem. You go on the internet and you pay your $100, and then you become a minister, in this case, of the Universal Life Church. And I was able to marry them in Connecticut in a wonderfully, wonderful ceremony. Have you got a taste for it now? Yes, I did think of starting a website in which you might say, you know, want to be married by your very own Lord. There might be a demand in the US for this kind of thing. I am available. Lord King, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Anne. And we'd love to know what you think. Should we do away with forecasters altogether? Or could some of us do with a little more thinking in numbers before we rush to empty the supermarket shelves? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And feel free to tell us who you would like Mervyn King to marry you to. For more of our journalism, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.